You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and relocating churches with our bare hands. This is Season 5, Episode 7, Toxic Charity. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm so very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Welcome back to podcast recording. My heart just lifted hearing you do that intro. Yay. For those of you who are listening to us right now, uh, you're, this episode is coming out two weeks after the last one, but the way that we recorded it, Carrie oh, and I right. had about a six-week <laughs> break uh, between episodes because of vacations and uh, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church and a few other things. So uh, for us in podcast production land, it's been a while since we saw each other uh, over the internet, and it's great. Great to see you too. It's wonderful to be back. I know we had all so many listeners asking. And by that, I mean, at least one person was like, hey, are there any more episodes coming out? And I said, yes, there are at some point. Stay tuned. Thank you, constant listener, for your interest. And it is good to be back. Our scripture quotation today comes from the gospel according to Mark, uh, one of my favorite stories in the gospel of Mark. I went and looked at my sermon archive, and I've preached on this go- uh, gospel lesson four times in my career. Uh, it is Mark ten forty six to 52, the story of Bartimaeus. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, Bartimaeus sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. And our nerd quotation for this episode is from the song The Family Madrigal in Encanto, and it's Abuela singing, We swear to always help those around us and earn the miracle that somehow found us. The town keeps growing, the world keeps turning, but work and dedication will keep the miracle burning, and each new generation must keep the miracle burning. So our topic today is toxic charity, which is something that I think has come into common parlance a little bit more frequently, but it's something that I had to learn about in a kind of painful way. So when I graduated, when I was a senior in college as an English major, I took a philosophy class and consequently wanted to change the world. My goal in life was to help people. So I took this leadership seminar, I think in winter break of my senior year, and it culminated with us doing a um, community engagement project where we went to a local apartment building. I don't know what kind of community it was, if it was like affordable housing or there was section eight or something, but it was classified as kind of like needy people in our minds, in our liberal education up on the hill, far away from the downtown of Worcester, Massachusetts, where I went to school. We've met a lot of wonderful people, did interviews, talked to people about what, what they need. And then we formed a program, a children's like after school program. And we framed it out on what we would do and what it would look like, what the parameters would be. And that was it. That was it. 
we oh, got you to didn't the actually the create the program no we didn't that was the weird thing at the time it was we were in the final session and someone one of the parents was like so are you going to do this and we we're like no this is just a project like for school and it didn't occur to me how messed up that was um until maybe you know, in the moment it was awkward and kind of confusing. And now looking back at that, that is a classic example of toxic charity in that we went in, we did make an effort to learn about this community, but we basically were just like, we're going to give you what you need, but then not actually give it, get your hopes up, take some of your time and your hospitality and not give anything back, nor be in any kind of actual ongoing relationship. So when we were looking at some of our favorite texts and nerddom, we realized that there's some pretty messed up ways that the characters in them engage with people who are different from them. Um, and that we wanted to talk about toxic charity. Can you uh, go ahead and just quickly define the concept of toxic charity just uh, with a definition uh, beyond just the story you told? Because uh, I want to make sure it's, this wasn't a term that was familiar to me uh, until you and I started talking about it. The concept was familiar, but not the term. Toxic charity is the concept in which a group of people or a charity or an organization go and do service to a community, presumably that's not their own, coming as guests. And they come in with a lot of power, privilege, maybe not a lot of understanding of the place that they are going to or the people or what they need, and sometimes provide unskilled labor for these communities that ends up doing more harm than good. It creates a dependence model. It undermines the local economy in some ways. And it kind of has this paternalistic, we're coming to help you um, one-sided relationship, which is ultimately not how Christian mission should work, I would argue, from a theological perspective. Not only a paternalistic worldview, but also a colonial one. And for in my mind, the concept of toxic charity is is bound up very much with colonialism mm -hmm. uh, because it often, again, like you see, like you said, has this idea of some some somebody with some sort of power going into an underserved community and fixing something that may or may not need to be fixed and doing it in such a way that continues to take the power out of the community. Right. And it's it's tied up with um, the concept of the white savior, of, which is highly tied to the Christianity's relationship between missionaries and colonialism and imperialism, where where the white person goes into these brown or black communities and fixes them when, in fact, they might not need fixing. And of course, there's lots of other problems with missionary work as it has been expressed in our tradition with the indigenous boarding schools, with other ways of forced indoctrination. But we see this even in the most benign seeming, friendly, feel good ways. You know, you think of like your church doing a mission trip. It seems like a really great idea, right? And if it's approached with the wrong mindset, it can ultimately do harm both to the communities and to the people doing it. So me as a college student saying, I'm going to go to this underserved population and come up with a program that we're not actually going to implement, or even if we did, we didn't do enough research to make it really, or relationship building to make it worthwhile. Um, it's kind of, it has been a lesson that I had to learn difficultly and has taught me well, but it was harmful. And one of the reasons we wanted to have this discussion came about our desire to talk about Encanto for the entire season, <laughs> the entirety of season five, uh, both Carrie and I in watching that movie 
saw within that microcosm of a community, this concept of toxic charity rearing its ugly head when the family Madrigal uh creates this town, the rest of the town seems to be completely dependent on the Madrigal family. And it is kind of a patron relationship. The family Madrigal has the biggest house. They have the power. I think when the facade starts to crack, I remember the scene of Alma shouting out at the villagers saying, you know, basically get out. We are the family Madrigal and shutting the doors like they're the village royalty essentially yeah and everything's going to be fine we're the family madrigal don't worry we'll take care of you because that's and and they'll do things that aren't really even necessary i think peppa tweaking the weather maybe that's helpful yeah get some rainfall in a drought season but as our opening text said you know luisa moves the church for some reason she's always going after those donkeys why (laughs) why do the donkeys donkeys. keep escaping uh um I'm pretty sure she moves churches so that they can rhyme it in her song. What is it? With worth is. Yeah. Yeah. And I glow. And she says, and I glow because I know what my worth is. So Louisa being a prime example of the ways in which toxic charity not only hurts the community by making them dependent and kind of infantilizing them, but it really hurts Louisa. That's the whole pressure, not pressure drop. That's the whole power. Surface pressure. That's the whole surface pressure song. God, you really got to listen your, to Toots this and the Maytals. This is your Natalie. This is your, <laughs> this is your Natalie love, Romanoff. <laughs> I just love Toots and the Maytals, man. Um, uh, it shows how she's breaking under the pressure of doing all these absurd tasks and keeping everything together and perfect, essentially keeping the whole weight of the village on her shoulders. The quotation that we read, that you read uh, from Abuela for our nerd quote today, um, says, we swear to always help those around us, which is fantastic. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the things we got to be careful of is we we want to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of saying helping people is wrong. Yes. It's obviously not <laughs> You're wrong. You're a bad person <laughs> if you want to help people. Yeah. The challenge, and this is why toxic charity is such an insidious thing. The people who engage in this type of charity, and you and I have both fallen fallen mm-hmm. fit for this we have both been on the the side of of offering this toxic charity before i because I, I have as well um the reason it's insidious is because we think we're doing the right thing the whole time and it's because it has we have not examined uh the the uh the system that we're engaged in where we've not in, we've not examined the power differentials we've not in, examined the history um and and that's and so when whenever i hear somebody saying we need to go help those needy people mm-hmm. um we are going to care for them that starts now ringing alarm bells in my mind because it has the wrong preposition and mm. all of this is solved by changing the preposition to to the preposition with Toxic charity exists when you have a, an us-them relationship where we are going to them and doing something as opposed to forming a new community of of us and them together so that we, we, we make a new we. And we get that model from Jesus. Our opening scripture quotation was Jesus and Bartimaeus. He meets this man who's blind and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't just say, oh, you're not blind anymore because... 
I don't know, maybe he was fine. Bartimaeus naming that he wants his his sight to be healed empowers him, puts them on more of an equal footing. And we see Jesus throughout the Bible having power with people, power for people, not power over them. Mm-hmm. He never sets himself above people. Instead, he practices of vulnerability and community building by being with the people. If you think about the story of the hemorrhaging woman, she reaches out and touches his cloak and he, and she is healed. And then he, and all the people around, he uses his power to open up a space for her to tell her story. And that's the kind of relationship building that is important in charity or mission work. And and the story of Bartimaeus is astounding. When you start breaking it down, Jesus doesn't do anything in this whole story. Right. Oh, it's, sure. it's kind of amazing. If you if you read it line by line, it specifically says that Jesus stands still. Every action in this story is done by Bartimaeus. He he hears them coming. He uh, starts screaming, shouting Jesus's shouting for Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me twice. Even when they tell him to be quiet, he shouts out again. Jesus stands still and says, call him here. Bartimaeus then, trusting that Jesus is actually going to help him, um, throws off of his throws off his cloak, leaps to his feet. The verbs in this story are very mm. active verbs. Um, leaps to his feet and comes to Jesus. And I always have this kind of image in my head when I've written from the in the first person on this story before. I have Bartimaeus kind of counting his steps to get to Jesus, because what if Jesus can't heal his sight? Now he has to make it back to where his stuff is, oh. uh, you know, he's going to count, you know, 50 steps going the other mm-hmm. direction to make, to make sure he can find his stuff. Right. Um, so he gets to Jesus. And then that's when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Again, not assuming he knows what Bartimaeus wants. And then Bartimaeus says, uh, you know, my teacher, let me see again. Uh, and so all of the action in this story comes from Bartimaeus. Jesus stands still and lets him approach, lets him take the lead in this story, even though the other people who are following Jesus are trying to shut Bartimaeus up. It's a really beautiful, incredible story. And that's the exact opposite posture we see in, you know, in Canto with the family swooping down from their beautiful casita every morning, you know, fueled with their espresso that Mirabelle has made for them. You know, that's parading. why coffee's for grownups. <laughs> it is. They're parading out of the front doors to go bless the village. Make flowers appear everywhere. Yeah. Uh, heal people. Great. Again. Um, but they're almost, you know, revered like saints. There's that picture of all of them and the painting of them downtown that shows like they're almost like patron saints of the village. And that's not the kind of relationship that is healthy ultimately. It breaks down and the loveliness of the end of Encanto is it becomes a more mutual relationship. They lose their magic. The casita falls and we have the village coming to help them. Yeah. And that's such an amazing moment in the movie when that when the toxic charity falls apart. Mm-hmm. And we do get that mutuality of the village now coming and helping. And they say they have such a weird line. Uh, we have no gifts, mm. but we are many. They have internalized this idea that they have no giftedness because they don't have magic. Right. Which is the driving problem of the story, right? The family doesn't see Mirabelle as worthwhile because she doesn't have a magic gift, but she has so many other gifts. When you were watching with subtitles, did you notice if that happened to be capital G gifts? Oh, you know, I didn't I didn't look. I meant to look back, but I wonder if, you know, 
I would imagine it is like, you know, we I have think it no... probably is. I probably is capitalized. But we'd have to double check. Yeah. But the fact that they are very talented, they rebuild the house and even the family learns that they don't need their magical gifts, right? Isabella saying, it's a dream when we work as a team. And to Luisa, you're so strong. Yeah, but sometimes I cry that they're more, well, again, I'm just going to basically quote the whole song back at you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> you're more than just your gifts, yeah. as Abuela says. And she's learned this now. And one hopes that once they, we assume that when they open the door to the new casita, their gifts, their magical gifts return. And hopefully now, because they've had this experience of the house falling down and the town helping, they do continue more of a mutual relationship with the townspeople mm. as opposed to reverting back to the older toxic model. And that they learn that they are, you know, they're not worthless if they can't be of service. Instead, they are all mm -hmm. worthwhile people on their own because of who they are. And they have some of them happen to have this different type of gift that can be used for good or, or it can be used to wrangle Larissa, the donkeys. <laughs> the donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Keep those donkeys in a better pen. That's right. Seriously. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about mission trips here. Uh, we've talked uh, about you had that story at the beginning about your class. Talk to me a little bit about voluntourism. Uh, this is just a word that I know exists. I meant to Google it before. But basically, there's a whole tourism industry around shepherding people across the globe to, quote, underserved or, quote, third world countries and having them basically do, you know, feel good mission work. Well, not, they wouldn't call it mission service work. Uh, a lot of these companies are making a lot of money um, off of people's good intentions, but it's not, again, it's not the most effective way to be doing it. And it often tokenizes these places and cultures to be some kind of feel good thing for wealthy folks back in the US. They even, to the extent where some people will go do work during the day and then these companies will hire crews to come in at night and redo everything hmm. because they're not doing skilled labor. I think it's summarized best in there's a podcast in our diocese that um, our communications department runs and a colleague of the pod, Marcella Gillis, she did a wonderful episode of the Coffee Hour at the Commons podcast that was titled Mission work, mission trips are not about your satisfaction. Mm. We'll Basically, link it in the in the show notes. Yeah, it's wonderful. Listen, she's not she's not a professed nerd. She doesn't watch or, or consume the same kind of media we do. But in listening to that podcast episode in preparation for this, um, she really stresses when she takes children and youth on mission trips that you need to be curious, learn about the place you're going to. You do the service, but then you also learn what it means to stand in solidarity, entering the experience of the people you're visiting as a guest, and then afterwards, be an advocate and a witness sharing what you've learned and not just have it be a one-week experience. She really frames it as a year-long commitment that will change a person's life. By framing some sort of mission trip with those four values you know, of curiosity, service, solidarity, advocacy, we're, we're taking a step back and looking at the wider dynamics at play. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes examining those power differentials that have happened over hundreds of years because of uh, colonial presence and, uh, and imperialism, a lot of which uh, is spurred by the, was spurred by the church. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we just uh, will release this episode a couple of weeks from when we record it. But as we record just last week, the Lambeth conference finished 
uh, which is for those of you who are not Episcopalian is the every 10 years or so gathering of pretty much every bishop from the Anglican communion. Uh, it turns out to be over 600 bishops from many, many provinces, the largest groups of Anglicans in the world, uh, currently are in uh, Africa and in South America. Um, and you see within the Lambeth Conference, the emanations of our colonial history, uh, mm -hmm. because it's basically Commonwealth countries that have Anglican churches, places that were under the rule of the British Empire at some point. And they still go every 10 years where to <laughs> Canterbury. Uh, Canterbury in England where or the or you know where the um the locus of power of the Anglican communion is which still is England even though the English church is one of the smaller provinces at this point because people stopped going to church in England um <laughs> where they didn't stop going to church in Nigeria uh so um we see these colonial power dynamics still at play and uh we want to avoid those when we are uh you know exiting our white churches and going out into some community and deciding what that community needs because that's just another uh another version of the same colonial story speaking of deciding what a community needs let's talk We've been avoiding talking about this for a while <laughs> because it's very uncomfortable. Hermione and the Society for the Protection of Elvish Welfare. Terrible acronym. Yes, SPEW. Yes. SPEW. Uh, so this is an example of what, what are called a white, a white savior story. Um, again, that white savior being the, um, the embodiment of those colonial power differentials that we were talking about. Um, and Hermione in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire decides <laughs> that the house elves need to be liberated from their servitude at Hogwarts. And we'll start off with the fact that there's obviously a problem with the existence of a service race in the wizarding world. I didn't get to do the kind of research. It's not canonical how house elves came about if they were domesticated and developed like sentience after a while, or if they were a, a regular, you know, thinking free people that were enslaved by magic. But when we come to the stories in 1991 or so, uh, we learn about these things called house elves, these people who work in domestic servant servitude. They are passed down through families bred to serve wizarding families. And for the most, we although we meet a very unhappy house elf, for the most part, they're satisfied and that's an awkward thing about harry potter and the house elves is hermione learns about the existence of house elves in hogwarts brought originally by helga hufflepuff and she immediately sets about to liberate them she doesn't ask how they got there what their working and living conditions are she takes her ideas of what freedom looks like which is pensions holidays and pay very Good, very British, <laughs> uh, very British way of viewing it. Um, I imagine national health care would be on there if she had a little bit more time to write out her desires. And she sets about trying to free them by knitting hats and hiding them under pieces of rubbish in the common room to trick them into being freed. And to the point where Dobby and they stop and they stop uh, the house elves stop cleaning the uh, Gryffindor common room 
because mm-hmm. they don't want to accidentally pick up one of the hats and socks. And so Dobby ends up cleaning the whole, cleaning it, right? <laughs> and taking all the hats. Yeah. And they're, they're insulted by it. So we, we meet, we meet Dobby who's being mistreated, who wants to be free. And he is an elf that's very different from the rest of the elves. We meet Winky, who does not want to be dismissed, but is freed by her master as a punishment mm-hmm. by Barty Crouch, um, and is clearly unhappy with that, suffers like a mental breakdown because of the loss of her position and livelihood and well-being. You know, her whole her whole world is disrupted. And what I see the difference, what's problematic about Hermione is that we know that there's people in the wizarding world who work for the promotion of elvish welfare. They Dumbledore is well known for his work in having better living conditions for house elves, for working towards, you know, more equal status for them. He works within the system. Hermione works outside the system, doing a little bit of research, but mostly just trying to spring them without any thought of what the what the ramifications would be. And eventually she works for the Department of the Control of Magical Creatures and presumably works for their welfare within the system. And of course, the reason that the concept of the house elves is so highly problematic is that it mirrors arguments made in the real world during uh, the time of chattel slavery, Mm. which basically were enslaved people want to be enslaved. Enslaved people wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they weren't enslaved. All of those arguments, uh, specious arguments, were are echoed in the house elves uh, storyline in Harry Potter, which is why it was not a very well thought out storyline. So what Hermione is doing is virtuous in that she sees a uh, group of people who are enslaved, even though I don't mm-hmm. think they ever use the word slave in she does. She does, but I don't think... But they don't. She's virtuous in that she sees this group of people who are enslaved and tries to free them, but she does not start by engaging those people directly. She just thinks she knows what they need. And that's a that's an example of toxic charity. Unless you read the Arithmancer. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> and it just goes to show that engaging in work in order to, quote, help other people needs more than a short term mindset. And I think a classic fantasy representation of good intentions, really bad execution and long term Mm -hmm. effects is Daenerys Targaryen in A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones, depending on if you're reading the books or watching the show, um, where she liberates, quote unquote, three cities in what's called Slaver's Bay in Essos early on in her campaign. She's won the hearts of the Dothraki people, and now she's trying to build up her following, build an army. And she goes to buy these eunuch warriors called the Unsullied, ends up purchasing them and then liberating them, and then carrying them out along with the rest, you know, freeing the city, destroying Mm -hmm. the slavers, going on to the next city, only to find out by the time she conquers the third enslaver city, that the first city is back in chains under another, you know, like under a butcher king because she made no provisions besides a short-term council. She had no direct oversight, no continued relationship with the city. And they fall into just as bad hands. When she frees the third city of Marine, she actually has people who want to sell themselves back into slavery, which she ends up allowing and receiving a direct cut of the profits because that's the way it had been done. 
And she basically learns by the end of this side quest. Um, she says, how can I rule seven kingdoms if I cannot rule a city? My children need time to heal and learn. My dragons need time to grow and test their wings. And I need the same. I will not let this city, Marine, go the way of Astapor. So she mm-hmm. chooses to say for at least a time to try to learn. But she, the tokenization of these people um, purely serves her own self-image. She she genuinely cares about them, but she's unable to. She's doesn't have the skills needed to support them the way that a really well-seasoned leader could. And by disrupting their entire livelihood, their entire economy, she creates a power vacuum. And, and again, we have the tone deaf uh, usage of um, a white uh, leader mm. who is uh, liberating uh, a mass of brown people. Mm-hmm. That even though we are in a fantasy realm, still the author of the story and the creators of the television show um, decide, or maybe not even decide uh, consciously, mm-hmm. but have decided to depict this um, this liberation of slaves as a white savior and uh, and brown masses who even in, in the, at the very end of one of the seasons when they're calling out Misa, Misa, which means mother, mm-hmm. I, I think, right? Uh, yep. It's her in the center and it just pans out and there's all of these brown arms stretching for uh, Amelia Clark. And um, it, it just shows a lack of imagination about mm-hmm. how to tell a story um, because it's just so stuck in the real world. Uh, uh, the, again, those emanations of colonialism in the real world. Right. And the arguments. So if Westeros is basically fantasy Europe and they abhor slavery in, in fantasy Europe, AKA Westeros, Essos is this exotic quote, you know, quote, exotic, mm-hmm. far away, Eastern place where there's people with darker skin who enslave each other. And that was one of the arguments made against or for chattel slavery is like, well, these people are savages on their own. They're enslaving each other. So why don't we keep, why don't we do it? Essos and Westeros are a very clear. um, And like you said, lack of imagination of what a fantasy world can be, where it's basically just fantasy caricatures of our own cultures there's two there's two other stories that we don't really have time to get into right now. Uh, the clearest example of a white savior in fiction is Paul Atreides in Dune. Uh, you can go see the the new movie, which is on HBO Max, uh, starring Tim- Timothy Chalamet, if you want to see an example of that. Uh, the other one would be Sully in uh, Avatar, where this, uh, you know, the white marine grunt basically, quote unquote, goes native uh, in order to save the... What what are the people? I don't know. Oh no. Water nation. No, there's I I haven't seen Avatar. Uh you've never seen it? I I have in a long Uh, time. Uh the uh uh, what are these people called? The Navi. There it is. I had I didn't have that Avatar. No, I've never seen that Avatar. Uh, Where the I'm thinking Airbender. Oh no, 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 no. That's 
amazing. Okay. <laughs> I'm not talking yeah, about yeah. Okay. Last oh, um, Avatar. Avatar. I'm talking the other one being James Cameron's Avatar, in which the white marine grunt, quote unquote, goes native in order to save the Navi from the colonial imperialistic expansion of the humans. Uh, so just mention those two. We don't need to talk about them. Um, but all of the, again, all this has to do with power dynamics and how uh, in our fiction stories, how those dynamics from the real world get deployed into fiction. Oftentimes, I think without the especially white authors realizing what they're doing, and again, as a novelist myself, I have fallen into this trap as well. And mm. the more books I write, the more conscious I am of trying really hard not to fall into those traps of my own uh, steeping in white supremacy that allows me to tell these stories without really thinking about them. And ultimately, this is important work to be doing. Um, we, we want to be serving the world, you know, go in peace to love and serve the Lord is what we say sometimes at the end of our services in the Episcopal church. We want to be like Jesus. And that does mean having a servant's heart. On the other hand, we need to be more like Jesus by entering these, those experiences with real curiosity, with a desire to build relationship, not to tokenize other people for our own satisfaction, but really to learn how to bring our full selves into the work, into relationship, and ultimately build the kingdom of God. This episode on The Book Club, we are continuing our read through the Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. We're discussing the chapters October 25th and Heresy today. Here's a quick recap. Corbin and Sissix despise each other, like for real. So when the Quellen arrest Corbin for being a clone and Sissix is the only one of the crew that can get him out, well, such is life, Sissix retrieves a broken and naked Corbin from the Quellen and brings him back to the Wayfarer. Corbin had no idea he was a clone, and now his father Marcus has been arrested for generating progeny in this illegal way. They have a fractious sib call in which Marcus tells Corbin about a lost love and desire to make a new life. The call ends with no reconciliation, except that Corbin is relieved to know he has no gene tweaks and his birth date is one thing about him that is true. Jenks has an intimate conversation with Lovey in her core about their highly illegal plan to transfer her consciousness into a body kit. It seems the events of Corbin's dad's arrest have Jenks rethinking the plan. Rosemary accesses the linkings and reads up on the debate surrounding human entrance into the GC. One argument against admission was that humans were still an adolescent species who never grew out of their intraspecies conflict. To fix the Stasi, Ashby and Kizzy head down to a rogue planet with astonishing technology, only to discover a colony of heretical cyanats. They are no longer pairs, having cured themselves of the Whisperer's influence. Ohan are furious about it, thinking Ashby and Kizzy will come back full of dangerous ideas. The trouble is that heretics live long, healthy lives and retain the ability to navigate. The only barrier to the cure is a big one, the totality of cyanat culture and religion. 
Ashby and Kizzy bring back a syringe full of the cure, but Ohan won't hear about taking it, which saddens other members of the crew who know they will soon die without it. Ohan, however, believe they will die either way, for death of the body and death of the whisperer means Ohan becomes someone else. I don't know if I was reading too much into this through the toxic charity lens, but these two chapters have three, I think, examples of the same power dynamics we were talking about earlier in the episode. So we've got Corbin's father who created him as a reminder of the love he lost and as a reminder that he had been loved. So his desire to create a clone of himself and to replace the ch- the unborn child and wife he had lost was purely out of self-interest just to, to for his own purposes. Um, Jenks engages in the conversation with Lovey about whether or not to do go forward with the body kit with the kind of curiosity and willingness to learn that one wants from a missionary or other person engaged in service. He doesn't assume it would be the best thing for her. And he asks and respects her choice saying, you know, we don't have to do this. I'm good with how you are now. And then finally, the conversation with Ohan is all about bodily autonomy and undermining, you know, the choice to not undermine their culture and their desires, even though Sissix and the rest of the crew think that they would be better off with the cure. So there's three kind of like resonances there. There's even a fourth, I think, in that uh, we continue to hear about the big three species in oh, the sure. Galactic Commons, the Harmagians, the Andrisk, and the Aluans. And they hold outsized power amongst all of the other groups. And a lot of that power comes from the fact that they were colonial powers, right? Or at least the Harmagians. At least the Harmagians were. were. Yeah. Uh, and that's why the Harmagians are still very powerful, is that they engaged in um, extractive colonial processes mm. in order to I- increase their own power. Uh, and we see that in Sissix's ability to link herself to Corbin and, and get him out of the Quellen's uh, prison. And that's an example of her using that power for for a good purpose. She's like, I'm a nobody, but as an Andrisk, mm-hmm. she knows she's aware of her own power that the media would love to hear about the Quaylin, you know, getting having problems with an Andrisk, um, the diplomats of the universe. So instead they're very obedient and they're deferential around her. And she's able to use that to extract her crewmate and essentially adopt him. It's kind of <laughs> cute. I want I want like a an additional novella of their adventures after this book ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a lot of shouting, I think. Yes, just a lot of shouting. Or a lot of frosty silence. <laughs> Warm silences, because she's allowed to crank the heater up as much oh, as she wants now right. in exchange for his freedom. <laughs> oh, man. I think the conversation with Ohan's going, we're going to talk about this again because the cure is just sitting there in the med bay. Yeah, right? it'll so come back way, in an episode it'll or come two. Back yeah. in, you know, in a, in a few chapters. Actually, um, I, 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 this the chapter heresy is, I think, my favorite chapter in this book. Uh, I, I just, I the way that Becky Chambers writes the various viewpoints that are, are expressed Mm -hmm. is really compelling, I think. And it brings me back to my ethics class in Mm. seminary. I remember my ethics professor very strongly saying, ethics only comes into play when there are goods in conflict. He he, He basically said, if you are trying to choose between right and wrong, 
that's not an ethical conversation. Ethical conversations only happen when you're trying to choose between two rights. Because if you're choosing between right and wrong, there is an obvious correct answer, Mm -hmm. which is right. But when you're choosing between two rights, you have to decide what are the values that you are applying to make that choice. And in this uh, chapter, we see the goods in conflict here are Ohan's bodily autonomy, as you mentioned, their ability to make choices about their own body. That's one good versus the good of a a longer life lived in a healthier manner. Uh, And that doesn't include any loss of the skills and abilities that Ohan already had. Uh, and so within the, within that ethical framework that we're talking, that we can, uh, explore in these two sides, um, there is that respect for autonomy. Mm. And then on the other side would be this concept of, uh, beneficence, which is we are going to give you this thing that is good for you. And if they just made Ohan do that, then they are, uh, going to save Ohan's life in a way at the expense of Ohan's uh, autonomy, dignity, uh, culture, religion, and all those things. Uh, and so I, I just see this, this chapter is really interesting when you look at it from an ethical uh, lens. When Ashby is defending his decision to not force Ohan to take the cure, he's talking to Sissix and he says, um, he uses the example, you know, it's it's a cultural thing, right? He's saying, I don't understand their culture, but I'm respecting it. So he asks Sissix, if I told you that treating your children like strangers offends every bone in my milk-fed mammalian body, that as your human captain, I expect you to follow my moral code. He he go, you know, he goes on to another example, but he's basically like, I respect your culture where your children are treated as strangers. Um, and not as the way that us mammals would treat our offspring. And I respect that. And I'm not making you follow my cultural expectations around children or coupling later on. He uses that example. Then we have to respect Ohan's decision to remain in possession of this virus that they all know will kill them. Mm-hmm. And we'll go on to see you know, what, what happens later but they choose to not say, you'll thank us later. They choose not to do that and to let them be. When they're on the planet, uh, Kizzy and Ashby are talking to Moss, the other cyanat. And um, Moss talks about how the cyanats set themselves apart from other species because of the gift of the whisper. And it really interesting. Let me read this. Kizzy has been talking about uh, how Ohan stare out the window uh, all the time. So boring. Uh, Kizzy laughed. <laughs> I've always thought that thought it looks boring, she said. And Ma says, it is. But if you are resistant, that is resistant to the whispers, whisperings, uh, you must stare. You must not let others know that you pretend. The ones who rule know, she said, leaning close. They know how they know resistant hosts exist, but it would ruin everything for many to know. Cyanat believe that the whisperer chose us, makes us special, makes us better than you. She poked Ashby's chest. But if we are resistant, one of two things is true. Either cyanats are not special, only diseased, and can evolve to resist. Or second thing, stupid thing, but easier conclusion for many, resistance are unholy. We reject the sacred. Heretics. You understand? 
we see this uh, cyanet power structure weaponizing culture and religion in order to hold on to the supremacy that they they believe about themselves. Mm. And a toxic, possibly white savior or scaled savior in the case of Sussex would be to take that medicine, force Ohan to take it and say, I know what's best for you. You've been manipulated. You've been kept in the dark. You've been poor you. I know better than you. And although it's a very difficult choice and she's not happy with it, the crew decides to let it lie for now. What else you got? Well, um, I just noticed, although the, the chapters start off with Corbin's degrading rant against Sissix turning into specious language, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of casual speciesist stuff that Kizzy engages in. Um, we see her perspective about the Quaylens. Actually, a lot of them, we, we get a couple perspectives in October 25th. Uh, Corbin, his very visceral reaction to like all the cold clicking of these creatures. Mm-hmm. Rosemary is trying to think of a more diplomatic way than like lobster centaurs to imagine them. <laughs> uh, but Kizzy has a couple of things where she's just very casually, jokingly speciesist. Like when Rosemary says, oh, what if like a human and a Hamargian paired up or something? Uh, like she's explaining the laws. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, ew. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's an interesting, um, it reminds me a little bit of Ron and Harry Potter, how he'll occasionally say things that are, you know, common in the wizarding world around, you know, house elves or other things that are definitely problematic, but are just part of the culture and the regular speech of mm-hmm. that culture. So mm-hmm. I, I, have, I imagine a lot of people in the galaxy are casually speciesist. Mm-hmm. And the only time that really gets shut down very forcibly and rightly so by Ashby is when Corbin says something explicit about a crewmate. And we hope that by being linked to each other, Sissix and Corbin, uh, because they are now in a tighter relationship, will be able to uh, is, transcend the those um, cultural mappings that they've had. So what are we reading next time on the podcast? We are reading uh, chapters Hedra Ka, Seven Hours, and Hard Reset. That's pages 360 to 403. And we're coming up on the end of the book, so a lot of action scenes are are coming up. So we'll see how much we have to talk about. But hope that you've been enjoying uh, this read-through of The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet with us. I know I have. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, AdamThomas.net. Planar Steel, sequel to last year's Vampire Mist, is out now where you too can learn how to play with fire and get a rockin' new bod in exchange. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. May God give you a heart to give and the humility to receive, the bravery to build relationships across difference, curiosity to learn from those who are different from you, courage to stand with those in need, and the vulnerability to share your own story. All this we pray so that each of you may be God's reconciling presence in the world. Amen.